0: Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life.
1: Welcome to Synapse Snips. This is Dr. Troy Spurrow with uh, Dr. Josh Wallert and Marquis. I almost called you Dr. Marquis. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, he'll okay. take it for today. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, what we've been seeing quite a bit in the last uh, year here. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, COVID long hauler and some of the vaccine reactions that we've experienced, as well as uh, just go over the highlights. Uh, with the frontline doctors, the FLCCC just released their protocols in the last week here uh, around these two topics. So we're going to go through their protocols and then just discuss a little bit about what we've been seeing and uh, treating uh, since this uh, all came about in the last two years here. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the long haul COVID um, syndrome. And so they've got a very good uh Right up about long hauler COVID and uh, first line therapy, second line therapies, uh, third and fourth as well. So we'll, we'll go through that. One of the things I really remember hearing early on, um, and this was maybe maybe six months into COVID, where uh, some of the people were having some lingering symptoms and Dr. Klinghart said something uh, and for those of you who don't know, Dr. Klingart is, um, he has a clinic in uh, Seattle, Washington, I believe, as well as Germany, and just a brilliant uh, uh, medical doctor, um, especially when it comes to very challenging disorders. And he treats a lot of Lyme disease. And he noticed that his COVID patients, the long hauler COVID patients were acting quite a bit like his Lyme patients. It was a very keen observation because what we're actually seeing now, fast forward a year and a half, um, we're seeing that play out a little bit more. So just a general comment, the majority of people that we see with long hauler COVID issues have an underlying infection that once their immune system gets kind of dampened by COVID, that underlying infection kind of rears its ugly head. And a lot of times it's what I'm going to call Lyme, Lyme syndrome. Which is basically the, the Lyme bacteria, but also the, the co-infections that go with Lyme. We've also seen other viruses rear their ugly head, like, uh, Epstein-Barr virus or shingles has come back in a lot of people. There's, there's quite a bit of people with shingles post-vaccination. And that's, that's a, a dampening of the immune system response. And then the viruses and the infections that are dormant, if you will, uh, rear their ugly heads. So that's the majority of what we're seeing. So uh, the overall highlight of this, we're going to talk through each little part. Uh, hopefully, people can recognize what's going on. But just in general, because of the stress of the last two years, because of COVID itself, because of introduction of the the vaccine program, we're actually seeing a general dampening of our immune system responses. And so this is very, very important to discuss, talk through, uh, and we want to be continually working on raising our uh, immune system response. And you'll see that actually reflected in a lot of the FLCC uh, protocol, their iRecover protocols. So I just think that um, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Malik, are, are, and the other doctors that contribute are, are brilliant with how they've assessed through this. And... Uh, brought out these protocols. So I thank them first and foremost. Um, your thoughts on what you've seen just in the last uh, two years in this light. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, it's similar where
2: underlying inflammatory issues that a person has prior, even if they're not quote-unquote sick with anything, um, do set people up to have issues with both the vaccine and COVID long-term, um, even if, like I said, even if they don't feel like they were unhealthy to begin with. A lot of us are walking around with latent infections and stressors and whether it's mold toxicity or environmental toxins or a bad diet, that if there's one trigger in COVID and vaccines are significant triggers, it, it pushes them over the edge, even if they didn't have COVID very significantly. right? The long haul COVID symptoms do not match up with the acute COVID symptoms. Right. You can have pretty mild COVID and have persistent symptoms. You can have Aggressive COVID and not have any problem afterwards. So it doesn't necessarily match that. Um, but like you said, most of the people that I've worked with, it's not, it's not as easy as just saying, Hey, let's do this one thing to try to fix, you know, COVID and then they're better. That seems to be the exception, not the rule. There's a yeah. lot of complexity
1: in both of these situations. Yeah. And generally what we know is that the virus itself um, lasts about five days and people really, very, very few people die from the virus itself, they actually die from the inflammation that the virus creates. So that's also true with our long hauler COVID patients and our and our vaccine reaction patients is um, there's an inflammatory component and that that unaddressed inflammation is one of the things that causes the majority of the problem. And remember your immune system does two things it fights infection and manages inflammation. So, as it gets overwhelmed with one area inflammation it's less able to fight infection as it gets overwhelmed with one area of fighting infection it's less able to manage inflammation and so that is basically in general what we have to do uh, when it comes to managing these uh, these long term reactions it's it's a balancing act between those two things and yes you have to constantly be supporting your immune system uh, one way or the other to get those two points addressed.
2: This is why one of the other pioneers in this area from a testing perspective, Dr. Bruce Patterson, has a a system now that he's doing specialty testing for inflammatory markers that are not typical on, on a normal blood panel, trying to identify the specific signature of inflammation that happens with this. And then a lot of the information on, on these I recover sheets do correlate with what would be found on a test like that. That test is more difficult to get, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> we, we aren't able to do that because um, they require a medical doctor, an MD, in order to run that testing. We don't have one here on staff. And I know that they, I believe last time one of my patients looked for that, they may have had one person in Minnesota, and that person was going to stop seeing people that may have changed now that was several yeah. months ago yep. so obviously there's a big demand for it but they haven't opened it up enough for it to be very useful
1: we're working around that I think maybe we need to uh, have yeah. someone if you're out there and you want to support uh, Synapse here we will develop our own uh, research lab so that we can start uh, doing that for our patients but uh, um, that is uh, the other area that could do is, is research so mm-hmm. research and R&D so it is on our list here. We will have our own R and D department that's independent of outside uh, influences. I'll say where we can get some to the root cause of some problems. So that's mm-hmm. on that's on the Synapse uh, wish list. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right. So let's start with the first line therapies for the long hauler syndrome, and um, it's uh, uh, starting with probably uh, the one area. When, when I heard Dr. Corey speak uh, about this, um, there was a very specific um, thing he said when he was talking about his patients. The majority of his patients do well with ivermectin, which is the first uh, thing that was brought in uh, for first-line therapy because it's uh, both binds the spike protein, does have some anti-inflammatory properties, and it actually has some antimicrobial, antiviral, in it, and especially antiparasitic properties. So it, it catches a lot of both areas of the conversation we're talking about. And he reported that the majority of his patients respond to that uh, to ivermectin, but the ones that don't, they go down a slightly different track. And so he has two tracks. Uh, this is how important ivermectin is. He bases a lot of what he's going to do on how they respond to ivermectin. So if they're ivermectin positive, they, he continues down that track. If they're ivermectin negative responsive, then he adds in some other... Uh, second line therapies, third or fourth line therapies. So we'll we'll, we'll start with that one. Ivermectin, it's slightly different dose uh, than acute COVID is what they're using. 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, but um, it is uh, f- very effective as uh, uh, as a treatment. And so he's only, he's generally only doing that for one week. Mm-hmm. But uh, we've had some patients that have had to be on it quite a bit longer when it's in, when it's more of a Lyme scenario. Yeah, exactly. You know, that this whole first-line section,
2: including the ivermectin, is meant to kind of address low-hanging fruit from an inflammation perspective. Right. And they expect people, if that, that's the only problem, to get better within a few weeks of this. Yes. And like you said already, we have a lot of people that don't. Um, but within that week or two of the ivermectin, plus some of these other things for inflammation, a lot of people will improve.
1: Yeah. And, and uh, uh, to your point on the inflammation, the, the next recommendation is prednisone, which is mm-hmm. uh, a steroid and anti-inflammatory uh, for three weeks. And so uh, I remember hearing Dr. Orso, an oncologist out of California, talk about if there was one medication that he wouldn't give up during his whole acute COVID scenario, it would be prednisone. Yeah. So to save the majority of, of lives, he would keep that one first and foremost because of its anti-inflammatory properties. And in hindsight, I feel like he's he's right. There's There's a lot of stuff about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in the beginning. And although they are uh, good at what they do, it really is the inflammation that was taking people down. So for the most part, we'll get into some of the other scenarios like clotting and other stuff later. But but the prednisone is uh, is number two on that list.
2: The next one is one that a lot of people have not heard of, uh, low-dose naltrexone. That's something that we utilize in a lot of immune situations. Naltrexone itself at high dose is a different type of drug, more like a narcotic, yeah. Uh, but at low dose, it doesn't have that effect. It has an immune-stabilizing effect. So again, this is a anti-inflammatory immune benefit by using low-dose
1: naltrexone. There's also a benefit with um, uh, people's stress response. So uh, we'll use that with people who have been uh, depleted because of lack of sleep, stress, pain, in, uh, inflammation, especially intestinal inflammation, uh, can really... Uh, diminish, uh, a lot of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access scenarios where, uh, historically we used to call it adrenal stress. Whereas LDN can help with balancing that immune system, uh, response. It actually has an impact on your ability to manage stress as well, which, uh, is a secondary effect and, and is quite helpful in scenarios of overcoming any, t- any chronic anything. So historically we know if you have chronic illness, that eventually you'll, you'll be fighting off some level of depression at some point. And so, uh, this becomes a nice balancer and a lot of people will, will actually respond well mentally, um, by bringing this one in.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: All right. The next
2: two are more on the nutritional side. Yes. And these are things that we use a lot in a lot of situations. Um, fish oil and vitamin D. Vitamin D has gotten a lot of press for yes. COVID and for good reasons. Uh, a lot of people still then will have a immune dysregulation because of the lack of vitamin D and, and the fatty acids too the omega-3, both of those
1: are important for regulation of immune function. Yeah. And, uh, vitamin D is, uh, one of the key modulators for uh, autoimmune as is omega-3 fatty acids. So it's interesting to me that, uh, uh to help balance, um, uh, uh autoimmune we always start with vitamin D omega 3 fatty acids and glutathione as our main mm-hmm. uh areas to help with the immune system uh, the balancing of it uh, omega 3 fatty acids is very anti-inflammatory helps protect the cardiovascular system as well as uh, the the immune system properties that it has and then vitamin D uh is really uh something that I've been surprised people I've had people on higher levels of vitamin D and their labs Don't reflect much gains. And I've seen that more in the last two years than than before. And uh, I'm not saying uh, people need to go to this high level, but uh, I had people on 10,000 IUs daily and um, it bumped up their vitamin D just minimally. So we had to actually have them go up to 15,000 IUs daily for a uh, full month or two to get their labs normal. On the FLCC chart, they actually have a vitamin D chart uh, that they have uh, as far as the vitamin D, and their levels are a little bit different than what we're talking about here. But uh, you can use that uh, that level <coughs> yeah. that to help guide you as
2: well. Yeah, they essentially do a loading dose uh, in a lot of situations with an yeah. initial high dose vitamin D, then then vitamin D de- based off of body weight, which I haven't seen before, but
1: is yeah. interesting. There was yeah, there's one one. Um, uh, research uh, a study done that uh, kind of discerned through that and I heard Dr. Corey talking about that uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Dr. Orso actually sorry not Dr. Corey Dr. Orso talking about that off of body weight so that's starting to become a, a newer trend if you will and the people um, uh, fighting this so it's uh, been it's very very interesting
2: yeah all
1: right so that's
2: you know, like we said, the first line therapy, that, that is the first line therapy that, that they use. We sometimes add in other things. You mentioned glutathione. There is research that a lot of people who struggle with COVID have low glutathione status. So I think that from an antioxidant perspective is an important thing to remember. It's not on this sheet that we're looking at here from the FLCCC, but, um, are there any other frontline things that you like other than what's on this list?
1: Um, yeah. So for, for me, uh, I'll also look at uh, some of the some of the um, stuff I've been using. Uh, I'll look at some other antioxidants that have some lime mm-hmm. implications. So I've been using uh, more recently higher dose resveratrol uh, from Japanese knotweed to to help with some of the cardiovascular stuff. Uh, it's a little early for me to to speak on uh, results with that, but on paper it looks great. Makes sense. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and then um, um, we i've used uh, biocidin uh, quite frequently with uh, success uh, and that's an an herbal product for anti mostly antimicrobial but uh, what what seems to be happening is remember a lot of your immune system lines the gut and so we see a lot of gi problems so by restabilizing that gi scenario and just getting people sleeping better that helps i'm just going to mention one other thing this is now, being medical doctors, um, the front line uh, wouldn't necessarily look at this, but all of my people that have had long-haul or COVID scenarios also have a uh, sleep disorder that we tend to look for, at least the physical part of the sleep disorder, the upper airway resistance syndrome, which for us we use a chiropractic adjustment to help the ox put in the airway. We open up the airway. Uh, by getting them sleeping again, it actually cleans up a lot of the dysfunction. So there. it's almost like if you're in a car accident and there's a physical trauma to the neck, you've got to rehabilitate from that. There's a rehab component. With COVID, the amount of inflammation and head pressure with many of these patients is so is such that it's equivalent to an injury from a car accident where there's a rehabilitation component that's needed. We happen to use chiropractic adjustments, occipital lifts, and, and where airway adjustments and my patients report a significant improvement most of the time, not all the time with that. And so sometimes I don't even need to get into these first line, second line th- therapies. If you restore the sleep process that's been disrupted, you see the mechanisms start to take over and they, and they feel better. And during COVID, we were actively treating, uh, with that. And I had to do that particular adjustment all the time, uh, that and open up some of the digestive, um, um, areas like the bile duct system, the intestines, and make sure those were working uh, properly. And that is a bit of a game changer. That's something unique in our world where when you do that, it would, I feel, minimize the need for a lot of these medications on the frontline therapy uh, approaches. But uh, we can't forget about the basics of getting good, deep sleep. And when you have something like this and then your sleep gets uh, interrupted, that's a game changer. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk second
2: line stuff. Um, So there's second and third line therapies. Maybe we'll just kind of bulk those together a little bit because you go from one to the next. Um, Really, it's ramping up different types of anti-inflammatory medications. So these are these are all medications. They can help in different situations. Um, The first two and the second line therapies are. um, something called flavoxamine, which is a SSRI antidepressant. And the second one is a torvastatin, which is usually a cholesterol medication. Yeah. Um, in both those situations, these medications are not being used for those purposes. They're no. being used for the anti-inflammatory benefits, either in the brain or in the blood
1: vessels. Yeah. we've not personally used those here with our protocols, with our nurse practitioner or anything, but, uh, uh I feel like we've, we skip to more of the the fourth-level stuff, and yeah. we see uh, results with that. We've not had to go to these, no. these particular
2: ones. Same with the third-line one, Maraviroc. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but that's an HIV medication mm-hmm. that has a specific mechanism, again, for, I believe, endothelial or blood vessel lining and inflammation dysfunction. Which we have found a
1: lot of, but mm-hmm. we use really totally uh, different. some different. We have a, a process here. Um, where we measure the endothelial lining dysfunction with a, a some technology called the EndoPat, and I believe I believe in the EndoPat uh, world, there's only three here in the state of Minnesota that we're in. Mayo Clinic has one, the U of M has one, and then we have one. But I believe we're the only clinic that actually is using nutri- nutritional therapies to actually uh, correct the imbalances. And we're having and seeing really good results using different things like resveratrol, nitric oxide balancers, and then uh, um products. So we're, we're seeing good changes with the stiffness of the arteries as well as the endothelial lining. So we really haven't had to go to these types of things uh, yet, yeah. but uh, there are some... There's some interesting things uh, within that, uh, that conversation that uh, we'll get to maybe in a different podcast. Sure.
2: Yeah. I've had a few patients that have used at least the statin and the fluvoxamine, and I would say it's those alone have not been the home runs where it's the end-all, be-all type of thing. So there are, like we said, a lot of other things that we can do from a brain and vascular inflammation
1: perspective that yeah. don't require the medications. There are side effects with those two. So level four uh, line therapies, this is where, uh, quite a bit more where we tend to jump to mm-hmm. using those because that's more our world. And uh, with, with uh, second and third line therapy medications, there's always side effects. And so I, I historically have worked to help people limit or minimize their side effects as much as possible. So there's a lot less potential for side effects, but you also want to make sure you're making enough of a change that they're actually getting better. Yeah. So let's start with uh, one of my f- favorites. Uh, curcumin is the is the first one in the adjunct of therapies. Uh, 500 milligrams twice a day. And then uh, um, this has been demonstrated to repolarize the macrophages. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that because one of the things that we're seeing with some of the long-haul COVID, we've got people with brain uh, symptoms. We have some people with like... Uh, numb feet or, or numb hands and curcumin is something that helps quite a bit with that because of its uh, impact on the macrophages we've been seeing lymphatic congestion and your macrophages when they go and clean up a lot of the the debris in the body and inflammation is like a forest fire it's going to leave debris it's going to leave some casualties to your cells and the macrophages have to go in and clean it up well that's a lot of work so you have to keep though that lymph system moving and flowing. Cur- curcumin is amazing for that. Uh, I take a shake every day um, that is just loaded with it, and uh, it's mostly for uh, uh, congested lymph, even though it helps put out the fire. It's an anti-inflammatory as well. Mm-hmm. It's
2: very similar in some ways to the resveratrol that you mentioned. Yes. You yeah. Know, the, it's, you often find products that have those coupled together. Um, I have both of those in my morning shake. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so the next one is, um, one that I had used in the past for mast cell issues. N- Nagella sativa, um, also called, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the, the name of it now. I'll think of it as we talk about it. But Nagella sativa has specific anti-inflammatory benefits. It also has an ingredient that I believe is somewhat like hydroxychloroquine. It has a quinolinone type of, uh, ingredient in there as well. Um, Black seed oil is the other oh, end yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. So that's you can. There's a lot of companies that'll sell black seed oil, and so they, you know, are, this recommends using quite a bit of it. Yeah. And I've I've For, seen it. Forty
1: milligrams per kilogram. Yeah. So that's a lot
2: per day. Um. And so that's again, I I use that in certain other patients that don't have a COVID problem at all because I find that it's a tolerable mast cell and histamine modulator.
1: Which I'm just going to say this, too. We have seen such an increase in mast cell mm-hmm. yeah. issues since uh, in the last two years. Uh, more people with seasonal reactions mm-hmm. um, with COVID. And then I've also seen people have the exact opposite reaction. But they're usually because they were doing stuff for COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Orso also, in his interview uh, he did uh, about a month ago now, talked about many of his COVID patients come back saying, thank you for cu- clearing up my allergies. And he said, "What do you mean? We weren't working on your allergies. We we're just trying to help you with COVID." Yeah. And it was mostly vitamin D related. And you and I joke saying, "Man, I wish we had that result with our <laughs> patients just by improving their vitamin D." Because we we look we've that. been looking at 25 years. I've been looking at vitamin D because I saw a study way back when I was in school. Um, this is when the Flintstones were around, <laughs> and uh, um, it was uh, essentially showed how vitamin D was more effective than the flu shot at that time. And so uh, so we've been focusing on that for 20 years. So we measure vitamin D with everyone. And just by getting that one uh, marker improved helps with a, quite a few things. And so yeah. with Dr. Orso commenting on just the pure volume of people with allergies, we're just getting the vitamin D back into a normal range to help them. Yeah. So some of the people who are focusing and taking the zinc and vitamin D for preventative reasons for COVID, listening to a lot of what we're Saying all of a sudden came back and their seasonal allergy stuff was better than it had been in previous years. Mm-hmm. The people who weren't listening to our podcast, <laughs> not just ours, but other <laughs> other uh, people that were talking about it, um, did quite a bit worse. So that's again to the point of just take care of your your defense system, which is your immune system, and you'll notice changes. Yeah, what's well, interesting on these
2: adjunct therapies, this section four here, you could say that. 80% of them have a mast cell yeah, mechanism. They do. The curcumin does, the, the gel sativa does, vitamin C does, uh, luteolin quercetin, they recommend medications, H1, H2, histamine blockers, but there's natural ways to do that too, and then the singular that they have on here. All of those are in that family because, <coughs> excuse me, mast cells are so sensitive to inflammation and irritation within the body and the immune system as a, as a, as a surveillance type of cell, that
1: they're they're irritated in a lot of the problems that we see now just yes, COVID. Yep. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So one of the ones you mentioned, vitamin C, we're seeing that with a lot of the uh, people too, with fatigue and and needing of adrenal support, like uh, like the LDN uh, we talked about uh, and the antiviral components. IV vitamin C has been very helpful with that uh, process as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other ones on the list, melatonin. Again, to speak to the getting people sleeping. Again, if you do, when we do an adjustment that helps their airway open up and their ability to sleep, that helps produce melatonin naturally. However, when you undergo stress, infection, or inflammation, your, there's a mechanism that happens in the brain where you don't convert tryptophan to to serotonin. Instead, much of that gets converted to a, an acid called quinolinic acid. Quinolinic acid in excess is neurotoxic. So stress, infection, and inflammation. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like the last two years. <laughs> so if you just look at the, that one component of uh, conversion of tryptophan to quinolinic acid, a neurotoxic brain chemical, many people's long haulers COVID stuff mm-hmm is simply a, a buildup of quinolinic acid or a lack of melatonin, serotonin to melatonin. So melatonin can be needed, but again, I'm going to have people really focus on reducing their stress, their infection, and their inflammation, doing those three things. Uh, there is a test that you can you can get. We run a test called an organic acid test that measures the quinolinic acid. So it gives us a good idea of uh, how much you, you have in that uh, area of the brain and um i haven't done enough of it again if we had that research facility that one of you wants to help us uh, get to uh, we do a lot more numbers but the handful that i i have run i've i found more elevations with that than uh, than in the past one of the other, one of the other hidden infections i used to find that all the time that seems to drive it a little bit worse uh, there's two um clostridial gi infections and then even worse is fungal infections and i've seen un Undiagnosed fungal infections in the GI tract really wreak havoc with that quinolinic acid uh, serotonin mm-hmm. breakdown yeah. estrogen is also a trigger for that pathway so
2: women tend to drive that pathway more because ultimately if you don't get stuck at quinolinic acid yeah. you make energy it's, a NA, you know, it's an NAD mm-hmm. Type of mechanism, which we won't get into, but it's high quinolinic acid on a test like that is very often a B6
1: deficiency marker as well. Yeah, you need B6 to convert the serotonin to the melatonin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, so also in the fourth level, we've got uh, kefir probi- probiotics, uh, basically bifidobacterial probiotics. So a lot of the pre and probiotics are very, very important. And then they go to behavioral modification. Mm-hmm. So this is very interesting because we're seeing a lot of limbic uh, issues and disorders since COVID quite a bit. So let's talk a little bit about this because they recommend behavioral modification, mindfulness therapy, psychological support uh, as part of it. And and what we're seeing is the need for more uh, what we're going to call limbic support. That's the emotional uh, component, but also in your limbic system that controls your autonomic nervous system. It controls your body temperature, your thermostat. So with the autonomic nervous system, that's the fight or flight response versus the rest and digest. So if you find yourself getting into fight or flight a little more often or uh, can't manage stress, it's going to cause some dysautonomia. And uh, we we see everything from dysautonomia-associated POTS to uh, just sluggish digestive function to inflammatory digestive function. It's going to wreak a little havoc with, uh, within that area. And your emotions can trigger it. Uh, inflammatory food can trigger it. Uh, different uh, hormones can also trigger it. And then the lack of getting deep restorative sleep is going to perpetuate it. So uh, very, very important to add some level of behavior modification. Um, and uh, we've, we've, we really focus on getting the sleep part of it and reducing the inflammation, which helps quite a bit. But we also have um, health coaching, and I've had to have people uh, refer for counseling and things like that to actually help people get through this.
2: Yeah. Uh, A significant increase or change in in mental health following COVID is sometimes seen with a reactivated infection of Bartonella. Yes. And so we don't talk Bartonella very often, but it's one of the more aggressive neurological infections. And it's, if you... Uh, especially, it's it's known for causing rage, or new types of anxiety, depression that no hasn't been uh, present before in people. That's always something to look for. Again, we talked he- hidden infections that reactivate. That's a common
1: one. Yeah, when he says rage, um, it's it's not like all the time. It's basically the person can be completely calm, normal, and then all of a sudden something ramps up, and then it turns to a level, an emotional outburst. That is just not normal for them, or if it 's been going on long term, maybe it 's become normal but it's it 's excessive, mm-hmm. and the person doesn 't feel as in control that 's like the hulk it 's like the hulk without yeah. Saving internally the world. Yeah, yeah without yeah <laughs> not, not the good hulk that saves the world <laughs> yeah. the, the bad hulk that smashes <laughs> <laughs> but that 's how you feel inside, and so um, people will start to recognize that because we 're going to see more and more of that. We already have seen an uptick uh, in that scenario. And I had a patient, um, who had COVID, uh, was near death, does credit us with, uh, with saving our life as far as the, the, that part of it. But then, um, that's what we recognized was underlying infection because of the response there. And the work that was done, we did a lot of mindfulness, a lot of what we do. We call neuromuscular reeducation and, um, uh, clearings here to help with that limbic response, but we are able to reduce in, uh, the, the level of inflammation through COVID, um, significantly. And the rage that was being expressed, uh, that she had for 10 years, uh, uh, has disappeared. And so she just says, I feel like I can control my emotions now. And she called them her emotional seizures, which actually is a very good description. It's almost like the emotional part of the brain starts firing ungated for, for a time period. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of that. So, um, what we're going to talk about next on this fourth line therapies actually play into that a little bit too. Um, those are the H1 receptor blockers, the H2 receptor blockers. These are mast cell activation syndrome. So, mast cell activation syndrome, that that's histamine. And I know this is your world, Josh, so I'm mm-hmm. going to let you discuss a little bit about just histamine. Um, and these histamine uh, medications as far as what they do for mast cell and uh, why is that important to the brain in particular. Yeah. Without going
2: into too much detail, because we did that on a previous podcast, yeah. so I'll just refer people to our past history. I think it was an allergy-related podcast. It was more allergy-related we, we uh, into versus we went on this, yeah. Again, mast cells being surveillance cells, their job is to pump out inflammation, essentially, to, to tell the rest of the immune system where the problem is. Yeah. And they can be, uh, that can happen excessively. And so when the immune system is dysregulated, that's why a lot of the other things that we're doing for COVID is regulating immune function. A dysregulated immune system is going to have mast cell overactivity or activation syndrome, as they'll, as they'll call it. The ways that you control that is either by calming down the mast cells. That's why the Nigel Sativa, Ludiolin, Quercetin, Curcumin, Vitamin C, all of that can help in that category. But you still want to block the chemicals that are being released. And so that's the H1, H2 blockers. There are people who will get significantly better taking those yeah. because you have those receptors throughout your body. People are familiar with these medications for either allergies. Um, that's the H1 blockers like Claritin. Um, even, um, no um, others, others, but and then the H2, yeah, yeah. So the H2 blockers are more known for for stomach acid problems yeah. or as acid blockers. But you have these in such wide varieties of places in your brain as uh, a big place where you have these receptors. Using these blockers, even if you're using the medication type, can offer significant symptom benefit. It's not necessarily fixing the problem. You're only putting
1: a bandaid on. On this issue, as you try to calm down the mast cells. Yeah, I want you to say that part again because historically, I've been very opposed to using these, um, and have worked There's, people to yeah. get through the, to get to the root cause problem mm-hmm. and fix that first. But we've gotten to such a level of urgency uh, yeah. that some yeah. people need them actually to to feel better a little bit before we can get the yeah. the root cause it's, stuff addressed. It's always a good clue if a person says, "Oh yeah, I feel better when
2: I take this." Medication, yeah. if it's a histamine medication, whether for COVID or not, yeah. it's a big clue that histamine and mast cells are a problem. Yeah, and so we work on the other factors there, so they can eventually get off the medication.
1: Yeah, because there's long term consequences to decreasing your uh, stomach acid, uh, um, as far as mm-hmm. the the actual process of that. So it's not getting to the root cause. So it's, but it is potentially helpful, and there are mm-hmm. some other things that can work through, like uh, with stomach acid in particular uh we know it's zinc and histamine dependent and so there's there's mechanisms there and if you're not sleeping properly the vagus nerve that supports the release of these of stomach acid through the parietal cells isn't gating or controlling that as effectively so there are mechanisms to to work through and so it's kind of like um and that's why a lot of people think that healthcare and and medicine, medicine in particular is just black and white but really, it's like a 3D, 4D puzzle that, that has moving parts. It's more like Harry Potter and the, those steps and stuff that are always changing position. So that's how the body really works on the inside. And so there are different ways to get to the, the level of imbalance, especially when it comes to our, our GI tract and restoring that. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. Uh, Singular is on here. Monoluk um, that's kind of the same thing, same yep. idea as the other ones. And then the last thing is, uh, anti-androgen therapy. There's some, some evidence that, um, imbalances hormonally can trigger issues. They're using two medications to, to lower testosterone, essentially.
1: Yeah. Great. So you guys can go through that if you go, go to, um, their website, which is, uh, COVID19criticalcare.com. covid 19 and 19 is one, nine critical care.com. Yeah. That, that'll give you all of their protocols and stuff. They do a good job yep. as far as just documenting these things. Yeah. If you Google FLCCC,
2: you'll also find it. Yes. Yep.
1: So you can get it there. Uh, all right. So let's go into the, I recover post vaccine treatment protocol. And so let's, we're going to talk a little bit about vaccines right now. And, uh, um, some of the things that are being seen, uh, I've had I had a lot of discussions with people early on about whether or not to do the vaccine. And um, right now, there's uh, uh, with what we know and see, there's stuff that just isn't being discussed that needs to be discussed. Now, the frontline doctors are discussing it because they're seeing it. There are people that are, that are treating it. And um, we know at this point there's risk with getting covid And there's risk with getting the vaccine. And so you should at least know what the risks are. And um, again, one of the challenges that I'm seeing is that it's not being uh, uh, pushed out as much as the risk of COVID are. So the risk of the vaccine is not being pushed out as much as the risk of COVID are. And so people just need to know that. The frontline doctors do a great job uh, discussing uh, that part of it. Um, I will say I can't comment on the company, but I have a... Uh, patient who works within the industry and uh, they've been keeping me abreast of what's kind of going on. Cause I just like to see, see it from different angles. And this was someone who was in, was in the industry who was very much uh, pro vaccine. That was uh, just showing me some videos of the pure volume of blood clots that they were removing uh, from their patient population, and the, their data I'll, has not been made public yet, so I'll let them release that. But their data was showing an, av- an increase in frequency and a decreased average age. Um, and so that is a trend that is highly suspect of um, coming from the vaccine. So we'll find out eventually on that. But the last uh, video they showed me was a 20-year-old who had a 12-inch clot removed. Um, from their lungs. So, uh, th- and, and their data is also showing that the, the majority of their patients, the high majority of their young patients, were all vaccinated. So, it's, it's data that has to be looked at, at it from a bigger point of view. But uh, with everything else that we're seeing and treating, and the, the other doctors are, it uh, needs to be brought up a little bit more. And uh, I'm just, I mean, our media is doing a horrible job right now at, uh, at uh, discussing all this, which If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not too (laughs) (laughs) – you probably know that already. So let's talk a little bit about for the iRecover post-vaccine treatment protocol. Mm -hmm. Uh, First-line therapies, uh, they first talk about um, intermittent daily fasting. So let's talk about uh, intermittent fasting and then – and then they say, or peri- periodic daily fasts. And so th- this intrigues me that they found benefit here, and I want to yeah. talk a little bit about it. Because I agree with it 100%. Yeah, we just talked about that in a recent podcast, yes. too, when we talk diets, we talk fasting.
2: Yep. Uh, one of the things I want to say just overall about the, vac- the vaccine is it's very similar in a lot of ways, but has some differences to, to COVID and post-COVID. Uh, there, there is some evidence that after vaccine, I think this was from Pfizer data, that... That the spike protein does seem to persist inside
1: of people yeah. in a
2: way that does not happen, which with is really itself. the big problem. It's it not yeah.
1: historically people have been concerned about vaccines because of the contaminants within the vaccines, mm-hmm. whether it be thimerosal, mm-hmm. which has been removed from some of them, things like that. Whereas with these vaccines, it is essentially a COVID-related problem. It's spike proteins yeah. that are that are in parts of the body that they shouldn't be. Yeah. So you get a very similar type of inflammation. The goal
2: here that's different is you you are trying to reduce that pro, spike protein load, so to speak. Yes, and the the first line therapies between these two are very between this and the one that we just talked about for long haul COVID. Yeah. There's a ton of overlap. There is. There are some specific differences, and this fasting is is part of it. Uh, with fasting, you you really turn on your body's scavenging and cleanup systems. Yes. And so with the, with the, either the daily fast, which is better, not everybody can do a daily fast, but intermittent fasting is the idea that you have a window where you eat during the day. Usually it's an eight hour eating window, like 10 a.m. to, to 6 p.m. where you can eat meals. And then you go from 6 p.m. at night all the way through. And then you don't eat again until 10 a.m. the next yeah. day. That forces your body into a state of, of repair. Yeah.
1: And I like, um, the fact that just recently in the, uh, national biotoxin uh, conference where they discuss mold illness and Lyme, things like that. They found uh, that uh, a three-day fast was actually once a month was actually more uh, helpful and significant than antibiotic treatment for Mm. chronic illness. So that kind of lines up with what we're seeing. And intermittent fasting uh, has an important role, like you said, with the scavenging but uh, actual elimination of the spike proteins. It, we need our immune system to go in and grab onto that uh, that toxin. Now, if you don't have antibodies doing that, it is up to our scavenging part of our immune system to clean that up. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, next on the first-line therapy list.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, we've talked
1: about this one. Ivermectin.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. One of the mechanisms proposed for ivermectin is a spike protein binding effect, yeah. and so that's why it's used in this situation. They'll use it a lot longer in a post-vaccine situation than a post-COVID situation. Yeah.
1: Do we want to discuss why? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it is that you're going to make a lot more spike protein with, <laughs> yeah. with the vaccine. Here's, well, and the dose is higher. So you need yeah. more ivermectin and, and you use it uh, longer because with COVID, the virus replicates and then it's done after five days. With the vaccine, the mRNA vaccines anyway, not the, the Johnson Johnson you are instructing your own cells to make spike protein, and so they're not supposed to get outside of the cell. It's supposed to be presented on the the what's called an antigen presenting cell, and uh, and then you're making antibodies against it. Well, if it's circulating in your body, you've not made enough antibodies to actually bind to that spike protein. So then it's up to your uh, other parts of your immune system. Also, the mechanism of when you turn off. That mRNA signaling to make those proteins is longer than five days, and that's a problem. And so uh, there's only been one study that shows, um, uh, has, has kind of followed up on that. So we're waiting to see more That uh, that one study out of Sweden. I think we spoke on a, on a podcast a while ago. But we're going to uh, we're going to see, and for some people, um, the mechanism appears to be uh, lasting longer. So you're not necessarily turning off the mechanism to produce more spike proteins, and they're not necessarily being contained within the cell that they're injected into. Yeah. That's that's a double whammy problem. That if if everyone has anything that they've seen that explains that, or has looked at that further, as far as the um i've looked at the pfizer research um uh, i'm going to call it a surface view because there's tens of thousands of uh, of pages there i actually read through the first 15,000 that were released uh, as far as um the uh documents the summary documents there's some people out there that are reading it page by page and then putting out the summaries and that is very helpful so i thank them tremendously um so there's uh, there, there's a lot there that uh, explains why ivermectin is needing a higher dose and a longer time period with the uh, vaccinated versus just the COVID long haulers. Yeah, I wonder if part of this,
2: too, is because of you know, with know, these vaccines, you're getting a change in intracellular inside the cell immune response yeah. and immune surveillance. This goes back to our... Um, path, you know, latent pathogen activation issue, or we see a lot of our patients benefit from long-term ivermectin. Part of it could be spike protein related in this situation. Some of it
1: could be other other infections too. Yeah, and part of the part of the problem is, to your point, um, when you downregulate the toll-like receptors, you don't get the intracellular. Um, defense mechanisms. So when you downregulate your immune system response to protect you against pathogens, you're more prone to picking up other things. Mm-hmm. And so if you have been vaccinated uh, once, twice, three, four times, um, be sure to just pay attention to whether or not you're, you're catching more colds or, or what your immune system is doing. Because mm-hmm. there is a mechanism of downregulation. Ivermectin, like we said, has antiparasitic antiviral, Properties and those parasites, and including things like Lyme, when they can get intracellular, that's that's where they want to go. Actually, mm-hmm. A lot of the viruses too. And so, if your defense mechanisms are down, you're more prone to getting these other infections. And so, uh, by blocking that, not only is it helping with some of the anti-inflammatory and some of the the cleanup for the spike proteins as far as binding, it has an impact on some of these anti-parasitic, antivirals that get into the cell. So it's important to to uh, keep that clean, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is one of the
2: big changes with ivermectin because you know one of the original protocols for even for post COVID and and for vaccine was to do a five day course and then once yeah. weekly. This is now
1: they're recommending daily for over a month, up to yeah. six weeks. And we we've. St- Seeing that uh, even go uh, 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 longer uh, with some of our patients and stuff. So uh, that's what we've had to work with here. But uh, those people tend to have pretty significant Lyme or mold illness. Yes, they do. Yeah. All right. The next
2: couple on here we've talked about. um, Actually, there's only one more on this list for frontline. Yeah. That we haven't talked about. So the things that we have talked about, let's just, I'll read those briefly. Uh, Low-dose naltrexone, we've talked about that from an immune regulation perspective and inflammation. Melatonin for sleep also has an antioxidant. Vitamin C, uh, vitamin D, they add K2. I think that's good because clotting is the next thing we're going to talk about anyways. Quercetin, again, the, the black seed oil and the gel sativa, prebiotics, probiotics, um, omega fats, I guess magnesium they throw in there too, um, for the but that's just a generally beneficial thing. The section, the couple things that they add that aren't on the post-COVID have to do with clotting and blood clots. Yeah. So they'll recommend aspirin, they'll recommend K2 in order to control clotting. We know from both from COVID and from uh, vaccine side effect data that clots, like you already mentioned, are a big problem. Yeah. Um, it's one of the ways that inflammation manifests inside the blood vessels is to create clots and, and sometimes quite large ones. And so it's recommended. Um, I, they don't even give a timeline. Often it's, it's indefinite until symptoms improve aspirin and vitamin k2 we've used some other things that are that are non-pharmaceutical um, lumbrokinase natokinase yeah. even serapeptase, which are more degrading they kind of chew up and, and degrade and eat uh, clots whereas aspirin is is reducing the clotting to begin with um, but the clotting is one of the things we've seen very yeah. frequently in our practice yeah,
1: quite a bit um, we've had. Uh, um, micro clotting, uh, which we've diagnosed with D-dimer and MRI um, findings, and then we've had some pretty macro clotting. Where I think uh, my one patient still holds the record, where had a clot from the ankle to the groin, so it was about three, a little over three feet long. So that was a that was a large clot. Yeah, yes, yes. and so um, the one the other thing I do want to ma- mention because you went through uh, quercetin, um, frontline. Does mention this on their, their protocol. So go ahead and, uh, look at that for more, more detail. But quercetin will interact with ivermectin. So it's something where, uh, they don't always have them being done at the same time. I'm also going to mention here is that you don't do all of these therapies. You got to do one at a time, starting with ivermectin, basically, and the diet stuff, and then, uh, start to, to build off of that. Sometimes like vitamin D and the fish oils we know are, are, pretty safe as far as uh, um building but some people are so sensitive that you, you just don't throw the whole lot at them yeah. so it these are the choices that people make and we mm-hmm. rarely have people on more than than just a couple of these at a time but yeah. uh, ivermectin is uh, is a good standby yeah, it is. all right the second uh we also have on the, the first line they also have uh The uh, sativa that we've already talked about, probiotics and prebiotics, and omega-3 fatty acids. And then the last one for the first line is magnesium, 500 milligrams per day. Um, This is really important for a lot of reasons, but magnesium is involved in 400 different enzyme systems in the body, and you have to keep your bowels moving. And so it really determines, your bowels determine how much magnesium you can take. Uh, we'll have people that require less than 500 milligrams, uh, 200 milligrams, but I've had people as high as 2,000 and some men as high as 3,000 milligrams uh, per day. And I will say the more obese you are and the more constipated you are, the more you're going to need. So that, that plays into it. Now for the second line therapies for the, the vaccine injury protocol, they've got hydroxychloroquine, uh, First there, and then intravenous vitamin C, uh, 25 grams weekly. And that, that is one of the things that we use is, uh, the IV vitamin C. Um, they also have mitochondrial energy optimizers. Um, and this, uh, this can help because there's been a lot of fatigue that goes with that. Um, we use different things to help with the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. Uh, n which is a glutathione precursor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then sulforaphane uh, or blo- broccoli extract. This is one of my favorite recommendations because uh, this wasn't on my radar until I saw what they were that they recommended it. But uh, it, it completely made sense with some of my patients that there was a need there. So sulfor- sulforaphane. Uh, there's a lot of sulfur that gets donated, and again, a lot of things like N-acetylcysteine and um, glutathione are sulfur dependent and so it helps with the detox part of this but the other thing that gets damaged with inflammation is your barrier system in your gut your immune system lines that and the barrier system in the gut is uh, the metallothionine uh, barrier system is zinc and sulfur dependent and sulfur can get depleted by with just all of this inflammation and the need for detoxification so this broccoli extract or sulforaphane uh, complex is actually very, very important, and that wasn't on my radar. Um, with this, I had had a couple patients taking it for other reasons, mm-hmm. but uh, it completely uh, makes sense to me on this one. Yeah, it's also one of the um, one of the
2: ingredients or, or molecules that's really good at activating your own antioxidant pathways so if we talk you know with the curcumin and the resveratrol they do some similar actions sulforaphane um, with the broccoli extract is a bit more potent in some sense for that Uh, I'm kind of surprised to not see specifically glutathione in something like this because even when we've talked about this recently especially when you use intravenous vitamin C yeah you're essentially depleting your glutathione temporarily when you when you use vitamin C because yeah. it's um, your antioxidant system's like a relay race, and it's like yeah. if all of a sudden the fourth person in a relay race doesn't show up one day, you can't quite finish that race <laughs> yeah, so without glutathione even if you give a lot of vitamin C you're not quite finishing I'm that going job. to make
1: a prediction that that will be on the list after a couple months either after <laughs> they hear this podcast or after they've had a little more experience with the next level of stuff because these, mm-hmm. these doctors writing these protocols are brilliant yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, the, the other thing and I know this might be my thing but uh, I've done high-dose iodine uh, in these scenarios with tremendous uh, effect and impact. So it's not just for thyroid and metabolism issues, but iodine has uh, the capacity to uh, be stored in different glands within our body and in the, the tissues, and it'll impact the environment to such a point that it makes it harder for infections to take root. Uh, it takes a while to get there, but uh, iodine... Uh, um, Nebulized iodine has an uh, impact and as far as COVID prevention, as well as just uh, getting the body flooded with iodine. And especially if you're in the Midwest, in the United States, or away from the ocean, we just don't get a lot of iodine. You primarily get it from the ocean. So it, it makes sense um, uh, with the iodine. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen more than a handful of people who are normal when we test iodine. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of the deficiencies are shocking. Yeah, yeah. yeah really bad.
2: All right. So we talked behavioral modification before. The, some of these boil down to stress management. Again, it's yes. interesting they add tai chi into this. Yeah, well, that's interesting how that's yeah. on this one, but not yeah, the, other the other one. one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't know much about tai chi. I had a, a colleague of mine in Colorado who liked to use it from a cardiovascular disease perspective for his patients. So I know that yeah. there's a lot of of stress reduction benefits just because you know tai chi is very a fluid controlled movement. Yeah. So it's a bit more than... And it's about breathing. Yeah, really. exactly. It's breathing with the movements. In some ways, similar to yoga, um, although I think there's likely some difference in how it affects the brain.
1: Yeah. The third line therapy we're going to wrap up with, uh, I also think this is good for some of our long hauler, COVID. Um, but they have it on here, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And that that may be one of our next toys we get here just because... Uh, of the impact uh, i've seen it have so some of my patients i've referred out for it uh, have done very well with it um one of my uh long hauler covid who is just complaining about uh, capacity at work has decreased mm-hmm. after just a few sessions and it it takes a while with the hyperbaric but after a few sessions already feels a difference just has oxygen to the brain it, it is when you're i'm you know I don't know how important oxygen is, but I hear it's pretty important.
2: <laughs> What's oxygen?
1: Oxygen. Yeah, that's a whole other
2: <laughs> podcast. <laughs> There's so many research studies on hyperbaric for any type of brain-related problem, yeah. whether it's concussion and traumatic brain injury, cognitive decline, other types of neurodegenerative situations, and now COVID, like you said, if you can get oxygen, especially if you've got the antioxidants to support the extra oxygen load, you really can increase healing and boost that quickly.
1: Yeah. You have increased free radicals, which are much easier to handle and manage than decreased capacity of the the, the brain regulating Mm -hmm. your body. So hyperbaric is uh, very, very, uh, very good for just in general, but for this in particular, yeah, it's similar to
2: why we use ozone. Yeah, too. ozone has other mechanisms too, but ozone is just three oxygen molecules that we're trying to pump into your body.
1: Yeah. Well, great! I encourage everyone to uh, check out the this website and the new protocols that they've just uploaded. Uh, again, I want to thank you for uh, listening and uh, tuning in. Uh, we are having our first annual five k event for State of Grace Foundation to raise funds. For, um, for patients that can't afford functional medicine care, uh, go ahead and uh, uh, check out our website, www.officialSynapse.com, and the information will be there. Thanks again, everyone. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips Podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialSynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Snips Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional